You are now listening to The Last Day's Return of the Historic Faith with your host, Pastor Jeremy Anderson and Brother Matthew Marcel. This podcast is for the kingdom Christian in the end times. As aliens in a foreign land and ambassadors of our king, we proudly fly the flag with the cross as we sing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God created all things, yet the origin of evil did not begin with God. Parts of God's creation made choices and reacted in ways that brought evil into their hearts and into this world. On the contrary, because of God's love for us, while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. In this book Jeremy Anderson speaks of the ancient origins of evil which are very much alive today. They have very real powers and authority behind them. Jeremy speaks of things happening all around us, that without God's grace would bring about the destruction of the whole of creation. If you believe it's important to understand your enemy and make sure you are in the right side of world events as they unfold, then this book will be of great value to you. Jeremy is the son of two pastors. His father died when Jeremy was only three years old. Jeremy's father, Richard Anderson was studying for the ministry and preaching the gospel while fighting leukemia. My name is Michael Lupo and I have been a pastor for 31 years I'm Jeremy's stepfather. God's call was evident in Jeremy's life from an early age, but Jeremy feeling abandoned by God, ran from him. God would not let go of Jeremy though, and after years of running Jeremy came back to God and surrendered completely to Jesus Christ. Jeremy brings his unique perspective and his thirst for the truth into the working of this book. The origins of evil are very much alive. They know their time is short and they want to destroy everyone they possibly can. Understanding the origins of evil helps us to see when it is cleverly hidden. This book will help you to see that evil, and see the only true redemption from it that's found in Jesus Christ our Lord. Pastor Michael Lupo One Introduction Readers usually skip the introductions and prefaces to books. Admittedly, they are generally boring. However readers of this book would be doing themselves a disservice to skip the introduction, and would be well advised to read this introduction to avoid any misunderstandings on the contents of this book. This book is going to begin by explaining the origins of the occult, and the ancient mystery religions. Then focus completely on Jewish mysticism also known as Kabbalah. This goes all the way back to antediluvian, pre-flood times, and the 200 watches that descended upon Mount Hermon in the days of Jared, as well as their giant hybrid offspring the Nephilim. One of the main reasons that I wrote this book is because so many people are being deceived into practicing Kabbalah through things like Freemasonry, the Hebrew Roots Movement, and Messianic Judaism just to name a few. This is why it's so very important to always be prayed up and be on guard against the devices of the enemy, so one does not fall into a practice that goes against the Father. I will also be talking about actual events involving real people, but I have changed their names in order to protect their privacy, except for a few occasions where I'm warning about specific teachers, and their teachings. In those instances, it is not my intention to defame anyone's character. 
I am simply warning the reader against dangerous books and doctrines. This work is meant to inform and equip the body of Christ to recognize the devices of the enemy, and battle the forces of darkness that seek to destroy us on a daily basis. I hope you will get as much out of reading this as I got out of writing it. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means harm you. To the fallen sons God, Benai Elohim, and the Nephilim. The goal of this series is to expose the occult doctrines and practices of Satan and give believers the information they need to recognize these doctrines of devils whenever they encounter them. Although this book will be focusing on Kabbalah and its use in most forms of the occult, it is very important to understand that Kabbalah and every one of the other forms of occult practices can be traced back to the watchers who descended upon Mount Hermon, and the ancient mystery religions formed before and after the Flood. The watchers are an angelic race that God created to observe mankind as a part of the Divine Council Deuteronomy chapter 32. They're called the, sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, before the flood in the days of Jared, 200 of the watchers descended to earth and mated with human women creating giant hybrids called Nephilim. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 6 verse 1 and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them too, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. 4. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and a bare children to them the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 6. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. 7. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man, and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. The book of 1st Enoch tells the same story of the flood narrative in much more detail. The Book of the Watchers in Enoch tells the story of the 200 watchers that descended upon Mount Hermon in the days of Jared. Jared was the father of Enoch and the great-great-grandfather of Noah. As holy Elohim of the Most High, and part of the Divine Council, the watchers were supposed to observe mankind and direct them to worship the Creator, Yahweh. Instead, they chose to rebel against God, have sex with humans and declared themselves gods. They committed a great sin by mating with human women and creating the Nephilim. Like the Watchers, their offspring the Nephilim were also worshipped as gods. In the Book of Enoch, the Watchers are angels dispatched to earth to watch over the humans. They soon begin to lust for human women and, at the prodding of their leader Samyazah, make an oath to illicitly instruct humanity and procreate among them. Two of the prominent among the Watchers are Samyazah, their leader, and Azazel. Like many other fallen angels mentioned in 1 Enoch 8.1-9, Azazel introduces men to forbidden arts, and it is Azazel who is rebuked by Enoch himself for illicit instructions, as stated in 1 Enoch 13.1. Both the book of Genesis, and the book of Enoch tells us that the earth and all its inhabitants became completely corrupt. 
Although the people were extremely sinful, the Hebrew suggests that mankind had become corrupt on a genetic level. Enoch 6-1 And it came to pass, when the sons of men had increased, that in those days there were born to them fair and beautiful daughters. 6-2 And the watchers, the sons of heaven, saw them and desired them. And they said to one another, Come, let us choose for ourselves wives from the children of men, and let us beget for ourselves children. 6-3 And Samezer, who was their leader, said to them, I fear that you may not wish this deed to be done, and that I alone will pay for this great sin. 6-4 And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath, and bind one another with curses not to alter this plan, but to carry out this plan effectively. 7 to 2 and they equals the human women became pregnant and bore large giants and their height was 3000 cubits 7 to 3 these devoured all the toil of men until men were unable to sustain them 7 to 4 and the giants turned against them in order to devour men 7 to 5 and they began to sin against birds and against animals and against reptiles and against fish and they devoured one another's flesh and drank the blood from it 7 to 6 Then the earth complained about the lawless ones. The result of this union is unnatural, as could be expected, the women bear violent giants. The giants' violence and voracious hunger cause humans tremendous distress, as well as setting off a domino effect of violence among all creatures of the world. The final result of all this illicit angelic intervention is the flood, to both rid the world of contamination and to end the human sin. The history of the Nephilim starts with the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, but we can pull information from the Bible, Josephus, Jasher, Enoch, Jubilees, and some Dead Sea Scrolls and paint a fairly complete picture of the history of the giants. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit will not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days will be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants, Nephilim, in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 to 4 The book of Enoch gives a detailed account of the 200 angels who fell and corrupted all flesh by genetically tampering with animals and mankind. We have seen that these angels married human women. Their children, half angelic and half human, became known as Nephilim. This was an abomination before God. Jude chapters 6 to 7 states that the angels were bound for committing the same sin that the men of Sodom wanted to do with the angels, Genesis chapter 19 verses 1 to 5. He then quotes the prophecy in Enoch 1 to 9. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 states these angels are bound in a place called Tartarus, hell in the KJV. According to Enoch 22, this is the special place for holding only these angels, their wives, and their sons until the judgment. For the complete story of the 200, see Enoch 6-16. They descended in the days of Jared, 460-622 AM, 3465-3303 BC. 
and their judges and rulers went to the daughters of men and took their wives by force from their husbands according to their choice, and the sons of men, in those days, took from the cattle of the earth the beasts of the field, and the fowls of the air, and taught the mixture of the animals of one species with another. Jasher 4.18 For owing to these three things came the flood upon the earth, namely, owing to the fornication wherein the watches against the law of their ordinances went a whoring after the daughters of men and took themselves wives of all which they chose, and they made the beginning of uncleanness. And they begot sons, the Nephilim, and they were all unlike, and they devoured one another, and the giants slew the Nephil, and the Nephil slew the Eljo, and the Eljo, mankind, and one man another. And after this they sinned against the beasts and birds. Jubilee 7.18-25 For many angels of God accompanied with women, and begot sons that proved unjust, and despisers of all that was good, on account of the confidence they had in their own strength. For the tradition is, that these men did what resembled the ACTS of those whom the Grecians call giants or titans. Josephus Ant. 1.3.1 In Hebron there were till then left the race of giants, who had bodies so large, and countenances so entirely different from other men, that they were surprising to the sight, and terrible to the hearing. The bones of these men are still shown to this very day. Josephus Ant. 5.2.3 Notice that Josephus records that the Greek legends of the Titans were based on Nephilim history. Jubilees 10-1-12 informs us that after the flood evil spirits began afflicting many of Noah's descendants. Noah prayed to God to bind all of the demons away from men. God bound nine-tenths of the demons, leaving only one-tenth to tempt and torment man. Revelation chapter 9 tells us that the demons will be released during the Great Tribulation. This will be the other nine-tenths of them. If the angels are bound, and the Nephilim are disembodied spirits, where did the giants after the flood come from? A third rebellion? No. The story continues, Genesis tells us that after the flood Noah divided the planet among his three sons. Ham was given what we call Africa and Shem, the Middle East. Canaan, Ham's son, left his territory and ventured north along the Mediterranean Sea. Why did Canaan travel all the way up the coast to found Sidon, his first city, in an area he knew was not his territory, then quickly settle another city, Tyre? The map at the right shows that those two locations are the closest he could get to mount an expedition to Mount Hermon. He wanted to find information about the pre-flood giants. And Canaan grew, and his father taught him writing, and he went to seek for himself a place where he might seize for himself a city and he found a writing which former generations had carved on the rock, and he read what was thereon, and he transcribed it and sinned owing to it, for it contained the teaching of the watchers in accordance with which they used to observe the omens of the sun and moon and stars in all the signs of heaven. And he wrote it down and said nothing regarding it, for he was afraid to speak to Noah about it lest he should be angry with him on account of it. Jubilees 8.1-5 After finding the writing containing the science of the Watchers, Canaan sought to create a race of warrior giants using the same type of genetic tampering which was done before the Flood. This explains how the giants came to be, but with a few problems. 2 Samuel 21.20 describes giants with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Moses led the children of Israel into battle with Og, the king of Bashan, who being a true giant, stood at least 12 feet tall, Deuteronomy chapter 3 verse 11. Bashan was anciently called the land of the giants. 
Og actually reigned from Mount Hermon, Joshua chapter 12 verses 4 to 5, the place where the angels descended. Even up to King David's time, Goliath remained, 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 4. He was one quarter giant and three quarters Philistine and reached only nine feet, nine inches tall. Another race of giants were the Anakim, Numbers chapter 13 verses 21 to 33. Some of the Amorites were as tall as a cedar tree, Amos chapter 2 verse 9, probably referring to the sons of Anak. Other giant races found in the Old Testament included the Emim, Deuteronomy chapter 2 verses 9 to 11, and the Zamzumim, Deuteronomy chapter 2 verses 20 to 21. The Anakim, Emim, and the Zamzumim were all equally tall. The Valley of Hinnom was anciently called the Valley of Giants, Joshua chapter 15 verse 8, 1816. Joshua destroyed all the Anakim except for a giant who escaped to Gaza, Joshua chapter 11 verses 21 to 22, the later home of Goliath. David's men killed Goliath's brother and one other son of the giant, 2 Samuel chapter 21 verses 20 to 21. In 400 years time the giant outbred, so that Goliath and his brothers were only 9 feet tall instead of 13 feet tall. The Genesis chapter 6 word for giants, Nephilim, occurs in only one other place, Numbers chapter 13 verse 33. These same post-flood giants who are called Nephilim in Numbers, are referred to as Rephaim in Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 11 and Genesis chapter 14 verse 5. These passages show that the post-flood giants were a special kind of Nephilim called Rephaim. This means they were not the procreation of another angelic rebellion, but a genetic tampering by man in a similar fashion as the angels did in the pre-flood world. Demonic possession demons seek to possess human beings. There are numerous scripture passages that discuss demonic possession and exorcism, casting out a demon. Demonic spirits possess men, Matthew chapter 12 verse 43, they know God, Jesus, and the prophecies, Mark chapter 1 verse 23, they can give supernatural strength and cause people to cut themselves, Mark chapter 5 verses 2 to 5, they are under the control of Satan, Mark chapter 7 verses 25 to 26, Luke chapter 4 verse 33, and sometimes cause disease, Luke chapter 9 verse 42. 19 Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Luke chapter 10 verse 19 The ancient church fathers on demonic possession we can surmise from the following quotes that the ancient church taught Christians cannot be possessed. Even new Christians can easily cast out demons. Christians are not to be involved in occult matters, but instead, free people by sharing the gospel with them. Tertullian 190-210 AD Apology 23 Moreover, if sorcerers put dreams into people's minds by the power of the angels and demons whose aid they have invited, how much more likely is this power of evil? The wicked spirit, bidden to speak by a follower of Christ, will as readily make the truthful confession that he is a demon. Apology 35 The arts of astrologers, soothsayers, augurs, and magicians were made known by the angels who sinned, and are forbidden by God. Marcion 1.18 The Marcionites are very strongly addicted to astrology. Treatise of the Soul 1.57 Magic and sorcery only seem to raise the dead. Only God can really raise the dead.
Lactantius 285 AD Divine Institutes 2.15 There are angels and different kinds of demons. Demons are also called jinn by some. In Enoch the giants themselves are killed. Their spirits, however, deriving from both immortal heavenly beings, the watchers, and mortal human women cannot be destroyed completely, but also cannot return to heaven. They remain connected to earth as evil spirits, wreaking havoc among humankind and causing both physical evil, such as disease, and moral evil, sin. 7-8 And now the giants who were born from spirits and flesh will be called evil spirits upon the earth, and on the earth will be their dwelling. 7-9 And evil spirits came out from their flesh because from above they were created, from the holy watches was their origin and first foundation. Evil spirits they will be on the earth, and spirits of the evil ones they will be called. 7.10 And the dwelling of the spirits of heaven is in heaven, but the dwelling of the spirits of earth, who were born on the earth, is on earth. 7.11 And the spirits of the giants, which do wrong and are corrupt, and attack and fight and break on the earth, and cause sorrow, and they eat no food and do not thirst, and are not observed. 7.12 And these spirits will rise against the sons of men and against the women because they came out from them. The spirits of the Nephilim that were killed in the flood became the evil spirits that we now know as demons. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians that the sacrifices made to idols are actually sacrificed to demons. 3. The Divine Council and the Nephilim. Children often ask, what was there before God made the world? The answer most adults would give is that God was there. That's true, but incomplete. God had company and I'm not talking about the other members of the Trinity. God's family. The biblical answer is that the heavenly host was with God before creation. In fact, they witnessed it. What God says to Job in Job 38-47 is clear on that point, 4, where were you at my laying the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you possess understanding. 5. Who determined its measurement? Yes, you do know? Or who stretched the measuring line upon it? 6. On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? 7. When the morning stars were singing together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. When God laid the foundations of the earth, the sons of God were there, shouting for joy. But who are the sons of God? Obviously, they aren't humans. This is before the creation of the world. We might think of them as angels, but that wouldn't be quite correct. The unseen world has a hierarchy, something reflected in such terms as archangel versus angel. That hierarchy is sometimes difficult for us to discern in the Old Testament, since we aren't accustomed to viewing the unseen world like a dynastic household, more on that following, as an Israelite would have processed certain terms used to describe the hierarchy. One in the ancient Semitic world, sons of God, Hebrew, Benai Elohim, is a phrase used to identify divine beings with higher level responsibilities and also in the heavenly realm, as well. Psalm chapter 82 is perhaps the clearest and perhaps the most startling. It is one of the first passages I read that opened my own eyes. The psalm refers to God's, Elohim, administration as a council. The first verse reads, God, Elohim, stands in the divine assembly, he administers judgment in the midst of the gods, Elohim. You no doubt noticed that the word Elohim occurs twice in this verse. You also probably recognize Elohim as one of God's names, despite the fact that the form of the word is plural. 
In English we make words plural by adding s or s or ies, rats, horses, stories. In Hebrew, plurals of masculine nouns end with im. While the word Elohim is plural in form, its meaning can be either plural or singular. Most often, over 2,000 times in the Hebrew Bible it is singular, referring to the God of Israel. We have words like this in English. For example, the word sheep can be either singular or plural. When we see sheep by itself, we don't know if we should think of one sheep or a flock of sheep. If we put sheep into a sentence, the sheep is lost, we know that only one sheep is meant since the verb requires a singular subject. Likewise, the sheep are lost, informs us that the status of more than one sheep is being discussed. Grammar guides us. It's the same with Hebrew. Psalm chapter 82 verse 1 is especially interesting since Elohim occurs twice in that single verse. In Psalm chapter 82 verse 1, the first Elohim must be singular, since the Hebrew grammar has the word as the subject of a singular verbal form, stands. The second Elohim must be plural, since the preposition in front of it, in the midst of, requires more than one. You can't be, in the midst of one. The preposition calls for a group as does the earlier noun, assembly. The meaning of the verse is inescapable, the singular Elohim of Israel presides over an assembly of Elohim. A quick read of Psalm chapter 82 informs us that God has called this council meeting to judge the Elohim for corrupt rule of the nations. Verse 6 of the Psalm declares that these Elohim are sons of God. God says to them, I have said, you are God's Elohim, and sons of the Most High, Bene Elian, all of you. To a biblical writer, the Most High Elian was the God of Israel. The Old Testament refers to him as Most High in several places, e.g., Gen 14:18-22, Num 24:16, P 7:17, 18:13, Fourth The sons of God, the Most High, here are clearly called Elohim, as the pronoun you in verse 6 is a plural form in the Hebrew. The text is not clear whether all of the Elohim are under judgment or just some. The idea of Elohim ruling the nations under God's authority is a biblical concept that is described in other passages we'll explore later. For now, it's sufficient that you see clearly that the sons of God are divine beings under the authority of the God of Israel. You see why the psalm threw me for a loop. The first verse has God presiding over an assembly of gods. Doesn't that sound like a pantheon, something we associate with polytheism and mythology? For that very reason, many English translations obscure the Hebrew in this verse. For example, the NASB translates it as, God takes his stand in his own congregation, he judges in the midst of the rulers. There's no need to camouflage what the Hebrew text says. People shouldn't be protected from the Bible. The biblical writers weren't polytheists. But since Psalm chapter 82 generates questions and controversy, we need to spend some time on what it teaches and what it doesn't teach, along with other passages that inform us about the divine counsel. The reason for this is the sons of God from Psalms 82 are the same sons of God for Genesis chapter 6, or at least they're the same kind of heavenly being. They are very possibly 70 of the same 200 sons of God, watchers, from both Genesis chapter 6, and Enoch 6 that descended upon Mount Hermon in the days of Jared. However there is much debate on how the Nephilim got to be on the earth after the flood. 
Some believe that there was a second incursion of watchers who mated with humans around the time of the Tower of Babel, or around the time of Abraham and Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, and a second excursion is entirely possible. I believe that the Bible also gives us clues. In the book of Job KJV there's a passage that says, Rephaim are formed from under the waters and the inhabitants thereof. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament says, Shall giants be formed from under the waters and the inhabitants thereof. After the flood the Bible refers to the giant clans as the Rephaim. Before and after the flood, the Watchers and the Nephilim were worshipped as gods by the people and the pantheons of the religions of nations like Egypt, Babylon, Greece, Rome, the Canaanites, etc. These religions were made up of the same gods and demigods, only with different names in each nation. This is where the ancient mystery religions of Egypt, Babylon, and eventually Israel came from. This was not the way God intended it. The Divine Council is the view that Yahweh, the God of Israel is the head of a group of heavenly beings if you will, consisting of lesser gods who serve him, carry out his will, and even deliberate with him in decision making. Some of these members were assigned to the 70 nations listed in Genesis chapter 10 after the Babel event, but they judged the nations they were assigned to corruptly, so God pronounced judgment on them that they would die like men. These gods became the pagan gods that Israel's neighbors worshipped and who warred against God all throughout salvation history. The biblical authors compare Yahweh to the gods of the nations. In several biblical passages throughout the Old Testament, we find phrases from the biblical authors exalting Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, above the gods of their pagan neighbors. Let me give just a few examples. Psalm chapter 97 verse 9 says, For thou, Lord, art high above the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. KJV, emphasis added. Exodus chapter 15 verse 11 says, Who is like unto these, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? KJV, emphasis added. 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 23 says, And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath who keep thy covenant with thy servants that walk before thee with all thy heart. KJV, emphasis added, Psalm chapter 86 verse 8 says, There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. ESV, emphasis added. The biblical authors compare Yahweh to other gods. They say that Yahweh is greater among all other gods. No one is like him. He is exalted above them all. There is no one among the gods like Yahweh. Old Testament scholar Michael Heiser, perhaps the world's leading authority on the biblical divine council says this, the question Christians must wrestle with is, how do statements like this make sense if these other gods do not really exist? Think of how it would sound if someone tried to exalt Jesus to an imaginary creature. It would not only be offensive to say, Jesus is better than a leprechaun, it would be illogical. The same is true for the comparison between God and the other deities in the Old Testament. The ancient authors are not comparing God to imaginary beings. Heiser goes on to say that in order for the aforementioned biblical texts to not be illogical nor blasphemous, the gods to which these biblical texts refer to must be real. I think Heiser is absolutely right. But doesn't the Bible say the gods aren't real? Doesn't the Bible contain numerous statements that there is only one God? 
What about 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 5 to 6 which says, For there is one God and one mediator between God mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Paul says very clearly in this passage, there is one God. How could Paul have made it any plainer than the only real deity that exists is Yahweh? God said through the prophet Isaiah, Understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 10b, NIV, And thus says the Lord, the King and Redeemer of Israel, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God but me. Isaiah chapter 44 verse 6 ESV, And I am the Lord, and there is no other, apart from me there is no God. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 5b. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 35 says, You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God, besides him there is no other. The passages seem pretty clear cut. The only deity that exists is Yahweh. If Yahweh is the only real God, any other gods must be imaginary. Adopting this interpretation would be fine if it weren't for the various verses in the previous subsection that compares Yahweh to other deities which, as Michael Heiser and I argued, would be illogical and blasphemous if these other deities weren't real. If the comparison passages e.g. Psalm chapter 86 verse 9 and denial passages e.g. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 35 are both taken literally, there is a contradiction in the Bible. But since the entirety of the Bible comes from an inerrant God, see Proverbs chapter 30 verse 5 and 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, we know that the Bible cannot contradict itself. An error on the part of us as interpreters must have occurred somewhere. So, where did that interpretive error occur? I think the interpretive error occurred in taking the denial passages as denial passages. It is far more plausible and likely that these are not at all denial passages, but statements of incomparability. By saying, I am God and there is no God besides me, there is no God but me and there will be none after me, and the Lord is God. Besides him is no other, Yahweh and the prophets are saying that Yahweh is the greatest God there is. They are saying that he is the most supreme entity in the universe. This can easily be seen when you look at other passages of scripture like Isaiah chapter 47 in which God is pronouncing judgment upon the nation of Babylon. We know it's about Babylon because God addresses the city by name in verse 1. In Isaiah chapter 47 verse 8, God says which says, Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me, I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. ESV Zephaniah chapter 2 verse 15 says of Nineveh, This is the city of revelry that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one and there is none besides me. Now, obviously, neither Babylon nor Nineveh were saying that they were the only nations that existed on the face of the planet. That would be a clearly absurd and ridiculous thing to say. Rather, these cities used language to assert incomparability. They were not making the absurd claim that they were the only nations that existed and any other nations were figments of people's imaginations. They were saying that they were the greatest nations on earth. It would be like if I said, Nintendo is the company that makes video games and there is no video game company besides it. That isn't to say I'm denying the existence of the companies behind the PlayStation and Xbox games. I just think Nintendo's franchises are supreme.
Mario, Pokemon, and Zelda. What about idols? What about passages that say things like, idols are nothing. They can't see or hear. In Isaiah, or, an idol is nothing, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 4. This is where understanding the cultural mindset of the ancient authors and of the cultural context helps to shed light. Professor John Walton explains in his book Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament that the image of an idol needed to be approved by the god whose image was being made. So the gods were responsible for initiating the manufacturing process. At the end of the process rituals were performed to transfer the deity from the spiritual world to the physical world by a process that one may refer to as actualizing the presence of the god in the temple. Consequently, the production of the image was viewed not in human terms, but as a miraculous process through which the deity worked, not unlike the traditional Christian concept of the inspiration of scripture. The most significant was the mouthwashing ritual. The procedure was carried out to enable the image to eat bread, drink water, and smell incense that is, to receive worship on behalf of the deity. Professor John Walton goes on to write, at the end of the mouthwashing ceremony, as the deity entered the inner sanctum, an incantation was pronounced indicating that hereafter the god would remain in his house. The image also functioned to mediate revelation from the deity. While the authors said that idols were nothing, as we'll see in the next subheader, they did not deny that there were real spiritual entities behind them. Is the Bible polytheistic? The first time I encountered this material is in Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. Michael Heiser writes, I know how difficult it was for me to understand that some cherished notions about the word G-O-D were actually misconceptions. One misconception was that the false gods of the Bible were only idols. Another notion that didn't conform to the reality of the text was that the word G-O-D is only a name, not just an ordinary noun. Because I thought G-O-D was exclusively the name of a personal being, and a unique being at that, I tended to assign the attributes of that being, Elohim of Israel, to the three letters G-O-D. When I came to realize that there were other G-O-D-S in a heavenly council, it seemed, and that's an important word, as though Yahweh was just one among equals, however Yahweh is inherently distinct and superior to all other gods. Yahweh is an Elohim, a god, but no other Elohim gods are Yahweh. I'm not assuming that this has answered all your questions about the divine council, though. I'm betting that many of you are like I was after first discovering what the inspired text really says, what the ancient worldview of Israel really assumed. You still may be stuck on the idea that there can only be one Elohim since Yahweh is called Elohim in so many places in the Bible. And if that's not true, you might be asking, then what is an Elohim? Michael Heiser points out that the Hebrew word for God, God is Elohim. And Heiser shows a variety of different usages of Elohim which show that it did not always refer to Yahweh, the God of Israel. It was used to refer to Yahweh, the God of Israel, thousands of times, e.g., Gen 2-4-5, Doi 4-35. The members of Yahweh's council, PSA 82-1-6. Gods and goddesses of other nations, Judge 11-24, 1 KGs 11-33. Demons, Hebrew, Shardim, Doi 32-17-3. The deceased Samuel, 1 Sam 28-13.
angels or the angel of Yahweh General 35 After wrestling with this concept in my mind for a week after reading Heiser's book, I came to this conclusion. I think Heiser's proposal is a powerful one, and it explains much. It doesn't threaten monotheism as I first thought. It might entail henotheism at worst. However, it appears to me that the Hebrew term Elohim is synonymous with our English word spirit. A spirit is just an immaterial unembodied or disembodied mind. God is a spirit, but there are also evil spirits, demons, good spirits, angels, and many of us would say that diseased humans in the intermediate state are spirits. However, although there are many spirits, there is only one omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, uncreated, morally perfect spirit, i.e. God. The Hebrew word Elohim seems to have been used in exactly the same way. Yahweh is an Elohim and there are many other Elohim, but there is only one omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, uncreated, morally perfect Elohim, i.e. Yahweh. Certainly, Yahweh, angels, demons, and even deceased humans would fall under the modern Western definition of spirit. They fall under the ancient Hebrew definition, Elohim. There is only one ultimate supreme Elohim. There is only one maximally great spirit. That is Yahweh, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. All others are lesser Elohim, God's, spirits. What the Divine Council does. As I have already shown, the Divine Council serves God and even participates with Him in some of His actions. In the Unseen Realm, Heiser says that the ancient Hebrews would have interpreted Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 to 27 as the Divine Council participating in the creation of human beings. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over everything that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in his own image he created them. Male and female created he them. KJV, what happened here was that God said to his divine counsel, Let us make man in our image. Now, one might object that if the Divine Council participated in man's creation, this gives creative power to beings other than Yahweh. This would only be so if Yahweh combined his powers with those of the Council to bring man materially into being, which I don't think Genesis chapter 1 is about anyway. However, Heiser says that God's saying, let us make man in our image, is analogous to me saying to our friends, let us get pizza for dinner. Although I alone drove to Little Caesars and brought the pizza home, my friends participated with me in the decision and gave me their approval. In other words, God was basically asking, I'm thinking of creating humans in our image, how does that sound? And the divine counsel was like, that sounds awesome. And then God created man in the image of him, which the divine council members also share. Only God exercised creative power, but the Divine Council nodded their heads in agreement to it. More blatant, however, is 1 Kings chapter 22. In this passage, Yahweh and his council are debating the best course of action to take in bringing about the demise of King Ahab. One says one thing, and another says another thing. Finally, someone says that he will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of Ahab's prophets, and Yahweh basically says, okay. That will work. The Divine Council and some of its members. In Genesis chapter 10, we read the account of the Tower of Babel. 
most Old Testament scholars now agree that the sin committed here was not a sin of pride, trying to build their way up to God, but rather their sin was building a ziggurat, which was to bring God down to their level. God did not like this and confused their languages to interrupt to the building project. The text then goes on to describe the people's dispersion into the 70 known nations of that day. This is called the Table of Nations. Now, what's interesting is that when Moses is recalling the Babel event after freeing the Israelites from bondage in Egypt, backquote Moses says this when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 8. So, did these 70 nations basically have a national guardian angel? If only that were so. Instead, Psalm chapter 82 informs us that these sons of God became corrupt. I'll quote the entire psalm below. God has taken his place in the divine council, in the midst of the gods he holds judgment, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked, they have neither knowledge nor understanding, they walk about in darkness, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless, like men you shall die, and fall like any prince, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Psalm chapter 82 tells us that God, Elohim, took his place in the divine council, in the midst of the gods. The psalmist goes on to tell us that these gods, Elohim, are being judged for corrupt ruling. It also says they are God's sons. Interpreting Genesis chapter 10, Deuteronomy chapter 32, and Psalm chapter 82 together, we come to this conclusion, there were members of the divine council who, like the humans, didn't want to represent God's authority anymore. They wanted to be God and they rebelled. And so these created beings deceived humans into worshipping them instead of their creator. And so, Babel becomes the biblical image for both the spiritual and human rebellions. And so God scatters the people of Babel into different nations. And in the book of Deuteronomy, this is when Moses said God also scattered the rebels of the divine council with them. So the nations are handed over to spiritual rulers. God against the gods. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses is rehearsing how Israel sinned during their wilderness trek by worshipping other gods. When we get to verse 17 we read this statement, note the underlining, they sacrificed to demons, not God, to gods, Elohim, they had never known, new gods, lit, new ones, that had come along recently, whom your fathers had not feared. The important observation is that the Israelites sacrificed to demons, and those recipients of the sacrifices are also called gods, Elohim. Paul also says that the pagan gods are demons in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 20. Brian Godawa made use of this biblical fact in his Chronicles of the Nephilim and Chronicles of the Apocalypse novel series. Brian has a large number of demon characters working behind the scenes in these two novel series. The demonic entities take on the identity of the gods in the various polytheistic religions of the world such as Apollyon, Satan, the Roman sun god, Zeus the god of thunder, Baal, the Israelite storm god, Asherah, and others. Heiser and Godawa both got me thinking. What if the polytheistic gods aren't figments of pagan imagination, but demons or fallen watchers trying to lead people away from Yahweh?
it would make sense. After all, wanting to be God is what initiated the angelic rebellion in the first place. It wouldn't at all be implausible for the demons to masquerade as pagan gods, inspire all sorts of wild stories about them, and lead people to worship them. Why not? Deuteronomy chapter 32 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 20 say that there are demons behind idols. Looking at the Bible in its ancient context leads to this conclusion, there are many gods, there is only one God. There are many powerful supernatural beings, but there's only one ultimate supreme supernatural being. This ultimately leads to an alternate reading of other Bible passages, such as the first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Exodus chapter 20 verse 3, or Jeremiah chapter 46 verse 25, the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, I am about to bring punishment on Ammon God of Thebes, on Pharaoh, on Egypt and her gods and her kings, and on those who rely on Pharaoh. How can God punish gods if these gods don't exist? Well, we don't need to say that they don't exist. We can say that they're fallen entities. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 20 tell us this. As for the first commandment, God says that we should not worship these other supernatural beings. So thanks to the work of authors like Dr. Michael Heiser and passages like Deuteronomy chapter 32 and Psalms 82, we know that there is a divine council made up of YHVH and the gods of the Gentiles from the table of nations, but the gods of the other nations are not gods the way that YHVH is God. The word God in the KJV is simply the English translation of the Hebrew word Elohim. The word Elohim in Hebrew doesn't define what someone or something is the way that the word God in English does. Instead it defines where someone or something comes from, and in this case, Elohim means from the spirit world. Also just like in English, only when it's referring to the creator YHVH, is the Hebrew word Elohim capitalized. So the Elohim or spirit beings of the Gentile nations were not gods in the way today's English-speaking people would think of a god. The Gentile gods were supposed to direct the people of those nations to worship the creator YHVH, but instead they became prideful and fell. They allowed the people to worship them which again is why Psalms 82-6-8 says. 6. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. 7. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. From the time of the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, God has had a plan to restore us and bring us back into communion with him. He chose one righteous man in a world full of sin and chaos, and made of him the great nation of Israel through whom Jesus Christ the Son of the living God would be born from, restoring the way to the Father and giving all people the chance to be a part of the Israel of God. All throughout the Old Testament starting with King Solomon, the nations of Israel and eventually Judah kept getting caught up in idolatry and the worship of these gods of the nations. This was a very important part of the enemy's plan to try and stop the Messiah from being born as prophesied in the Bible. Also Satan and the fallen watchers hate humanity, especially YHVH is chosen, and because the children of Israel were chosen by God to be a nation of priests and kings and a light unto all the nations, they tried to destroy them using every weapon in their arsenal to separate all of the children of Israel from YHVH. 
The enemy knew that it was impossible for them, or for any human to curse God's chosen people, but there was a way. Through cunning and subtlety, just like with Adam and Eve in the garden, the children of Israel could be lured into cursing themselves as we will see in the next chapter. 4 Divided and Conquered, The Corruption of Israel and Judah the books of 1 and 2 Kings cover the history of the monarchy from the reign of Solomon in 970 BC to the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC after the death of Solomon. The United Kingdom was divided into the Northern Kingdom of Israel and the Southern Kingdom of Judah. Each king in the north and in the south was judged by the book's authors according to whether or not he was faithful to God's covenant with Israel. As we shall see, nearly all of the kings were unfaithful and, according to the author writing for those in exile, this was the reason for all the bad things that had happened to their nation, their leaders turned from God and allowed pagan worship to replace true worship of God. First Book of Kings Division of Chapters One simple way to divide the chapters of the book is as follows, Chapters 1-11, Reign of Solomon, a united kingdom Chapters 12-22, Israel and Judah, a divided kingdom. We will now look at some of the passages in these books. Chapter 3, Solomon asks for wisdom after offering sacrifice in the sanctuary. Solomon has a dream in which God reveals himself, telling him, Ask something of me and I will give it to you. V.5, Solomon asks for an understanding heart so that he can distinguish right from wrong and govern God's people with wisdom. V.9, God is so pleased with Solomon's request that he grants Solomon not only wisdom but also great riches and glory. In God's words to Solomon, we note in verse 14 a conditional clause, If you follow me by keeping my commandments, I will give you long life. Chapter 11, Sins of Solomon Solomon loved many foreign women, from nations with which the Lord had forbidden the Israelites to intermarry, because, he said, they will turn your hearts to their gods, vv 1-2. As we finish reading chapter 10, we might say, all was rosy in the garden. Solomon is blessed with wisdom and wealth. He enjoys peace at home and abroad. But the seeds of destruction were sown early on in Solomon's reign. In 3-1-3, Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter and he worships at high places. Solomon's other wives turn his heart from following God's ways. V.3, his marriages to foreign women are contracted for political ends and shrines are built for his wives and traders. Such contracts, however, have jeopardized the purity of Israel's religion which strictly forbids such marriages and tolerance of pagan worship DT 17 Because of Solomon's failure to follow God's ways, he receives a third and final visit from the Lord who tells him, Since this is what you want, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I enjoined on you, I will deprive you of the kingdom and give it to your servant. I will not do this during your lifetime, however, for the sake of your father David, it is your son whom I will deprive. Nor will I take away the whole kingdom, I will leave your son one tribe for the sake of my servant David and of Jerusalem, which I have chosen 11, 11, 13. For the sake of political stability, economic prosperity, unrestrained lust, and military strength, Solomon triggers an earthquake that will shake the kingdom of Israel to its foundations. Because of God's love for David, the consequences of Solomon's sin will not occur during his lifetime, but during the lifetime of his son. Now we turn to one of the darkest periods in Israel's history, the division of the nation into two kingdoms. Chapter 12, Revolt of the Northern Tribes, Your Father Put on Us a Heavy Yoke. 
if you lighten the harsh service and the heavy yoke your father imposed on us, we will serve you. Version 4. After Solomon dies, all Israel assemble at Shechem to make his son, Rehoboam, king. The above quoted verse shows us how harsh Solomon had become on his people. He ended his reign as a tyrant. When the people plead with Rehoboam to lighten their burden, he asks for three days to reflect on their request. He listens to the old men and young men but follows instead the foolish advice of his peers. Rehoboam's action leads to the division of the kingdom which is described in economic VV1 and religious VV26 terms. Henceforth, the term Israel is normally used to refer to the northern kingdom, but is sometimes used to speak of the whole nation e.g., the phrase God of Israel 1 kg 17-1 is intended to mean the whole nation. The southern kingdom, made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, is called Judah. In its introduction to two kings, the application study Bible reads, Second Kings continues the history of Israel, halfway between the death of David and the death of the nation. Israel had been divided, 1 Kings chapter 12, and the two kingdoms had begun to slide into idolatry and corruption toward collapse and captivity. 2 Kings relates the sordid stories of the 12 kings of the northern kingdom, called Israel, and the 16 kings of the southern kingdom, called Judah. For 130 years Israel endured the succession of evil rulers until they were conquered by Shalmaneser of Assyria and led into captivity in 722 BC, 17-6. Of all the kings in both the north and south, only two, Hezekiah and Josiah, were called good. Because of their obedience to God and the spiritual revivals during their reigns, Judah stood for an additional 136 years until falling to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in 586 BC. God has always been faithful and kept his promises, and although the children of Israel went into idolatry, and sacrificed their children to the watchers and Nephilim as their gods, there was always a remnant who remained faithful to the God of Israel. Unfortunately the remnant had to go through the trials and tribulation with the rest of the people but God always kept them safe through it all. It was while in captivity in Babylon that many of the people of Judah started adding the practices and traditions of the Babylonian mystery religion to their religion. This plays a very important part in changing the God they worshipped from the God of the prophet Daniel, to the gods of the mysteries. It's no secret that King Cyrus freed the Jewish people from Babylonian captivity however what most do not realize is that only 50,000 Jewish people went back to the land of Israel to rebuild the temple. The rest remained in Babylon. The majority of the Jewish captives didn't learn anything from the judgment God had placed them under, because the sin of idolatry they were under judgment for only got worse during their captivity because they added the customs and practices of the Chaldeans to the many forms of apostasy they were already practicing. It was only the covenant made with King David that kept the southern kingdom of Judah from being divorced and scattered like the northern kingdom of Israel. There were very few righteous kings in either kingdom after the death of David. However when Josiah, a righteous king, tried to restore righteousness among the people, the people would not respond. The Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, and will cast off this city Jerusalem which I have chosen, and the house of which I said, My name shall be there 2 Kings chapter 23 verse 27. 
Just before the captivity, Ezekiel compared Judah to her elder sister Samaria, another name for the northern kingdom, and to her younger sister Sodom. The people of Judah continued to follow the pagan and idolatrous practices of their heathen neighbors instead of the commandments Jehovah had given them through Moses and the prophets. Cunningham Geike described this period of time, the strong Egyptian faction in Jerusalem had introduced the animal worship of the Nile Valley, and had even turned a large room in the temple into a chapel for its services. Quote ellipsis. The sun worship of the East had also found a footing in its court. In the very holiest spot of the sanctuary, about 25 men, presumably representatives of the high priest, stood with their backs to the temple, the open sign of apostasy, and worshipped the rising sun, their faces turned to the East. Hours with the Bible, from Manasseh to Zedekiah, 5 to 235. They even offered their children in sacrifice to the god Moloch, see Jeremiah chapter 32 verse 35. Jeremiah and other prophets told them that alliance with a decadent Egypt was a vain hope, for Egypt could not save them from a strong and ambitious Babylon, which had conquered Assyria and was now flexing its muscles in the east. But the leaders of Judah would not listen to the prophets. They threw Jeremiah into a pit, see Jeremiah chapter 38 verses 1 to 11, the Lord withdrew his spirit, and the stage was set for another national tragedy. Twice Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against Judah, twice he took captives, and twice he left Judah intact, thinking they had learned a lesson. But they had not, and when Nebuchadnezzar finished his third assault, Jerusalem lay in ruins, hundreds of thousands were dead, and all but the very poor, and weakest of the survivors were taken to Babylon. Like their northern sister, Judah now reaped the whirlwind they had sown with their own wickedness. The mixing of the Egyptian, Canaanite, Assyrian, and now Babylonian mystery traditions and religions by the religious leaders in the nation of Judah is what led to the practice of mysticism by the time of the Roman occupation. 5. Kabbalah through the ages of Pharisees and sages. Kabbalah is Jewish mysticism and the most widely practiced form of mysticism. It has been made increasingly popular in America by practitioners among the Hollywood elite. The spread of Kabbalah around the world has sparked controversy among the practitioners in Orthodox Judaism, who warn that this Jewish mystical practice holds hidden dangers and should never be taken lightly. Throughout its history followers have coded its writings to protect Kabbalah's secrets. Followers believe that decoding Kabbalah's ancient texts will reveal the answer to life's greatest mysteries. In Babylon in the 6th century BC, the prophet Ezekiel has a vision from God of the throne room of heaven with God seated upon his throne. This vision captivates a group of Jewish mystics in the 2nd century BC. These were the Merkabah mystics. These mystics hoped that through studying Ezekiel's vision and mystically meditating upon it, that they would be able to recreate this vision for themselves, and become one with what they call the divine spark. While seeking a mystical experience they try to reimagine what Ezekiel experienced, and this becomes the model for Jewish mystical ascent practiced by the Pharisees until the emergence of Kabbalah. In the 2nd century AD, Israel is still under Roman rule, and Jews who openly practice Judaism are either killed or forced into exile. It is during this time that many decide to follow the Pharisees and turn to mysticism. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai fled Israel from the Romans who sought to kill him because of anti-Roman statements he had made.
According to Jewish text, Rabbi Yochai hides in a cave for 13 years. It was in this cave, outside of Israel that Shimon bar Yochai, along with demonic inspiration, created the practice of meditating on the Torah to invoke mystical visions among other key Kabbalistic doctrines and practices. This made him one of the first key figures in Kabbalah's history. Like Bar Yochai, other groups of Orthodox Jews turned to mysticism trying to conceive a greater understanding of God. They said since God wasn't going to them, then they were going to where God was. What this group of deceived mystics didn't realize was that God had come to them in Jesus Christ, and they rejected and crucified him. They used different meditation techniques to work themselves into a hypnotic trance to try and invoke an experience with the divine. These techniques were coded and hidden. No one under the age of 40 could practice these mystical techniques. The mystics warned that novices could be driven mad or even die because they were unprepared for the powerful spiritual forces they would encounter. These were of course fallen angels and demons. During their demonic visions, the mystics would wear amulets to shield them from the power of the angels that they would have to get past in order to enter what they foolishly believed was the throne room of God. At roughly the same time in history, unknown mystics recorded a startling concept into the first influential book in the Kabbalah called the Sefer Yetzirah, or Book of Creation. It describes how one of the gods of Kabbalah made the world using the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The rabbis say that it's the same account of creation as the Genesis account, but with more detail. This is false. According to the book of John it was Jesus Christ that created all things as the spoken word of Elohim. The Sefer Yetzirah says that it wasn't words at all but the combining of actual physical individual letters of the Hebrew alphabet. This assumes that God spoke a language of a people who didn't exist yet. Adam and Eve weren't Hebrew and you can't just assume that God taught them how to speak in the Hebrew language. In the 11th century, the Crusades forced the Jewish people out of Israel, and into Europe where they bring their customs with them. By the 13th century Jewish mystical teachings have spread across what are now Germany, France, and Spain. The term Kabbalah now becomes widely used to describe the practice of Jewish mysticism. The Sefer Yetzirah, the Midrash, the Zohar, Third Enoch and some of the other non-biblical writings delve deep into the occult teachings of Kabbalah. The leading rabbis in the Sanhedrin in Israel say you can't separate the Kabbalah from the Babylonian Talmud. The inevitable course of this approach will inherently lead to another gospel and another Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 11-3 the Apostle Paul warns the church of another Jesus and another gospel. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 8 Paul wrote, But though we, or an angel of heaven preach any other gospel, let him be accursed. As ministers of the gospel, neither Paul nor any of the apostles ever wavered from the sure foundation of Moses and the prophets having their complete fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. There was no trading off or compromise with doctrines of demons such as those of Kabbalah. When Kabbalah speaks of the coming Mashiach, Messiah, it is never speaking about Jesus Christ, nor is Jesus Christ the Messiah spoken of in the Babylonian Talmud. In the introduction to the book, The Kosher Pig, the author begins by building a Kabbalistic frame of reference on how the Kingdom of God will be manifested on Earth. Kabbalists believe that there is a divine spark of God within every person and within all of creation. This is New Age Pantheism. 
the Kabbalah teaches that at the fall in the Garden of Eden, the divine sparks were scattered and that the Messiah will only come when the sparks, specifically the scattered Jews, are gathered back to the land of Israel. Shapira explains, the two conditions needed to bring the kingdom of God to earth and to bring Jewish souls or sparks back to God. In Jewish thought, the Messiah will only appear when the truth light presents itself in the proper context, tools, the restoration and salvation of all of Israel and the entire world is dependent upon the restoration of the divine Jewish sparks back to Hashem. The truth by itself, about the nature of the Messiah will not bring him and his kingdom to us. His kingdom will be established when all of the Jewish sparks will be gathered again. The traditions of Jewish mysticism are the same traditions for which Jesus condemned the religious Pharisees of his time. Before the rabbis, it was the Jewish elite, the religious leaders known as the Pharisees who shaped Judaism and continued the practice of mysticism, forming the rituals and reimagining God in some very startling ways. One of the most significant events in Kabbalah's history takes place around the year 1280 AD when a Spanish rabbi claims to discover another mysterious text, the Zohar. This will soon become the most important book in Kabbalah. Zohar means radiance or splendor in Hebrew. The ideas in the Zohar are very rattling and startling to say the least. Written mainly in Aramaic its pages are filled with arcane symbolism and erotic language. By arousal below there is similarly arousal above. Male and female unite, desire prevails, worlds are blessed, and above and below are in joy. To this day the author of the Zohar remains a mystery. Many Kabbalists believe that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai received divine inspiration to write the Zohar while living in a cave during the second century. Others suspect that the manuscript was written over a thousand years later, possibly by a Spanish rabbi, or a group of rabbis. The Zohar promises to those who can decipher the riddles in its pages, a greater understanding and relationship with God. Kabbalists believe that if they can decipher the secrets in the Zohar they will unlock the mysteries of both heaven and earth. One of these secrets is about the body and sexuality of God. By the 13th century, Kabbalah had spread throughout Europe and the Middle East. Yet even as the number of Jews studying Kabbalah grew, their secrets remained closely guarded. Ever since scholars have been searching for ways to unravel these secrets. On the surface the Zohar is a novel that follows Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and a group of rabbis through what is now Israel. Kabbalists believe that the narrative contains keys to unlocking the mysteries of the Torah. The Zohar contains a blasphemous belief that humans can direct God. The Zohar asks a radical question. It says who kicked whom out of the Garden of Eden. The Zohar actually teaches that Adam expelled God from the Garden. It says that we're still in the Garden but we don't realize it because we've expelled God and lost touch with the spiritual dimension. The further one delves into the Zohar the more cryptic the words become. It was written in arcane symbolism to keep the secrets of the Zohar with the elite only. The writers probably thought that only those who were spiritual enough like the Pharisees could unravel the mysteries and symbolism in the pages of the Zohar. The major symbolic code of the Zohar are the ten aspects of Inesof known as the Ten Sefiro. Inesof is the main god of Kabbalah, however there are twelve other gods which are worshipped, including Elohim, Lucifer, and the Ten Sefiro. The Kabbalists believe if they can figure out the mysteries of Ein Sof's anatomy, then they can figure out how his powers work.
Kabbalists believe that Ein Sof's body is very similar to humans, according to the Sephiro tree. Each of the ten Sephiro on the tree represent a god and an aspect of Ein Sof. The ninth part of the Sephiro of Ein Sof stretches from the Babylonian mystery religion and the worship of Nimrod, all the way to the Canaanite religion, and Baal worship. This is the phallus that goes forth from Yesod. This is the same phallus that is worshipped in Freemasonry, and is symbolized all over America. The most well-known phallic symbol in America is the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C. On the very bottom of the Sephiro tree Malkut, the divine feminine aspect of Ein Sof, and the Shekinah is the settling and dwelling of Malkut. Another name that the Shekinah is known as that has made its way to Christianity, is the female Holy Spirit. This comes straight out of the Kabbalah, and is found nowhere in scripture. The Zohar brought the hermaphrodite god of the mysteries into Orthodox Judaism, and the book itself describes how this god, Inesof, has sex with itself in order to create. I believe that the hermaphrodite god Inesof is Satan himself. The fact that you can worship Lucifer as one of the aspects of Inesof in Judaism, further backs up my belief. This doctrine from the Zohar of the divine male and female mating, further promotes the belief that man can direct God, however by this point in the book there's no need to even pretend that the God of Rabbinic Judaism is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Followers of Jewish Kabbalah believe that it is through human actions that the two parts come together in sexual union. They believe that the male and female parts of INSOF are united through ACTS of human virtue, works, and deeds. Allow me to say right now that prayer and intercession is the only thing that the one true God, and creator of everything is influenced by. The God of Judaism is unbalanced, according to the Zohar. Through sin and misdeeds INSOF is made unbalanced. Through the sin and misdeeds of man, INSOF is made unbalanced. The Zohar also says that the characters in the Bible aren't actually people. Instead it says that they are simply representations of the different aspects Ein Sof's personality. For instance it says that every reference to Abraham in the Bible is a reference to Ein Sof's loving kindness. I don't think that the Orthodox Jews who follow Kabbalah realize that this should be enough for them to reject the Zohar from Judaism, because if Abraham wasn't a real person, then they have no claim on the land of Israel. This is something I use when witnessing to people in the Jewish community. The Zohar also examines biblical events for hidden meanings. The flood according to the Zohar is happening right now. It says if you don't know that the flood is still going on, then you're drowning and don't even know it. So various symbols of chaos and destruction in the Bible are viewed not in their correct past tense, but are still unfolding every day. While the mystics were still exploring the Zohar for its mysteries in the 13th century, another Spanish Kabbalist was developing a new method for uniting with their god. Abraham ben Samuel Abulafia was the founder of the school of prophetic Kabbalah. He was born in Zaragoza, Spain in 1240 and is assumed to have died sometime after 1291. Abu technique involved intense meditation and yoga-like movements. His followers would use certain hand and head movements to concentrate on the Hebrew letters of the Bible. He created the 72-letter secret name doctrine that is still used today by followers of Aleister Crowley and others who use Hermetic Kabbalah and ritual magic. 
The 72-letter secret name doctrine says that if the 72 Hebrew letters in the secret name of God are aligned in the correct order and meditated upon hard enough, then man's mind and God's mind will unite. It's very dangerous to invoke any fallen angel, and I would never want to unite my mind with his mind. Some Kabbalists believe that Moses meditated on this 72-letter name to part the Red Sea, further showing the folly of this secret name doctrine. In 1492 at the height of the Spanish Inquisition, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella declared that all Jews must either convert to Catholicism or be expelled. During 1492 over 1,000 Jews fled Spain furthering the spread of Kabbalah around the world. There were many more that converted creating literally thousands of secret Kabbalists inside of the Roman Catholic Church. It would be the same secret Kabbalist who would form the Order of the Jesuits on August 15, 1534 in Paris, France. I could literally write another book on the Jesuits, and the way they have used the Catholic Church and many, many other things to infiltrate the body of Christ. I will be touching on this later on in the book. The Spanish Inquisition also sent tens of thousands of Jews fleeing back to the land of Israel. One group of these Kabbalistic Jewish men thought they could use the magic of Kabbalah to bring forth the Messiah. This group was centered in Galilee, and were led by Rabbi Isaac Luria Ashkenazi. Ashkenazi, commonly known in Jewish religious circles as Hari, Hari Hakadosh, the Holy Ari, or Arizal, the Ari, of blessed memory, was a leading rabbi and Jewish mystic in the community of Saft in the Galilee region of Ottoman Syria, now Israel. He is considered the father of contemporary Kabbalah, his teachings are referred to as Lurianich Kabbalah. While his direct literary contribution to the Kabbalistic school of Saft was extremely small, he wrote only a few poems, his spiritual fame led to their veneration and the acceptance of his authority. The works of his disciples compiled his oral teachings into writing. Every custom of the Ari was carefully studied, and many were accepted, even against previous practice. Luria spent many years in Egypt studying the Zohar and the texts of the Egyptian mystery religions, such as the Egyptian Book of the Dead. He was said to have acquired great powers from his many visits by angels who were of course of the fallen variety. One of these powers was the ability to tell what a person was thinking just by looking at their forehead. He was also supposed to have healed people, and many other great signs and wonders. Rabbi Luria taught reincarnation and believed that by studying a person's past lives, he could then fix that person's problems in their current life. He taught a theory of reincarnation that says that every individual is descended from a certain soul root after Adam and Eve. This belief in reincarnation is still held in modern times and is a part of orthodox doctrine in Rabbinic Judaism. It states that you are descended from either the sole root of Cain or Abel, or from the root of the three sons of Noah being Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sole root you are descended from will determine your essential nature according to Jewish doctrine. Another modern belief in Rabbinic Judaism that came from Rabbi Luria is that the world only exists because Inesof needed someone to relate to. The 16th century was marked by the spread of the Jewish mystical practice of Kabbalah. It began when Jewish mystical writings like the Sefer Yetzirah and Zohar were translated into Latin. Catholic philosophers were eager to study Kabbalah and believed it could help solve the mysteries of their own faith. 
They falsely believed that Kabbalah was an uncontaminated form of Judaism from the time or Christ that entailed the truths in Christianity. This belief was the foundation of what is often falsely called Christian Kabbalah. These Renaissance thinkers also used Kabbalah to understand the writings of Pythagoras and Plato, whose philosophies mirrored aspects of mystic Judaism. The philosopher that invented calculus was a Kabbalist, as well as Sir Isaac Newton. The people who created modern science and philosophy practiced the Kabbalah. Hasidism is an influential mystical Jewish movement founded in Poland in the 18th century in reaction to the rigid academicism of rabbinical Judaism. The movement declined sharply in the 19th century, but fundamentalist communities developed from it, and Hasidism is still a force in Jewish life, particularly in Israel and New York. Hasidic Jews took the practice of Kabbalah and made it available to ordinary people. Hasidism also emphasized the spreading of the more hidden Kabbalistic practices and ideas. It was the Hasidic Jews who preserved Kabbalah's traditions throughout the 1800s. Today Kabbalah has taken on an entirely new appearance in the city of fallen angels, being practiced by the Hollywood elite. Some Jewish scholars believe that this trend is exactly what early practitioners feared most. That the dangerous spiritual practices they warned were not to be taken lightly, would fall into the hands of the spiritually unprepared. I believe that the Bible has the best advice the early Jewish mystical practitioners should have heeded. No one should practice sorcery. 6 Golem, Kabbalistic sorcery brings the image of the beast to life. The Golem is a mystical creature from Jewish folklore, a Golem is an animated anthropomorphic being that is created entirely from inanimate matter. The word was used to mean an amorphous, unformed material in Psalms and medieval writing. The most famous Golem narrative involves Judah Lo Ben Bezalel, the late 16th century rabbi of Prague. Revelation chapter 13 verses 8, 14 to 15 8, And all who dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names aren't written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 14, And he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword, and did live. 15. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak, and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. We see in the verses above that the second beast of Revelation will cause all of the people alive on the earth who aren't followers of Jesus Christ to create an image of the first beast and also worship him. He's also going to have power to give life to the image of the beast. I believe that when the second beast, or false prophet gives life to the image, he will do so with Kabbalistic sorcery. We're going to see in this chapter that in antediluvian times the Nephilim used magic was used to bring statues to life. We're also going to see that in the Talmud, the Kabbalah, and in the Gnostic Gospels this same concept of using magic to bring inanimate objects to life. The golem was a creature made of clay that was brought to life by a Jewish rabbi using Kabbalistic magic in 16th century Prague. I believe wholeheartedly that the power to do this exists and I don't doubt that this creature truly was brought to life, and as you will see in this chapter I have very good reason to believe that it will be done again in the near future. There is a story in the Talmud of a group of rabbis who go on a journey. As they continued on their journey they became hungry. 
These rabbis took clay from the earth and formed a calf from it. They then killed the calf and ate it. The Kabbalistic Pharisees in the 2nd century determined that this group of rabbis from the Talmud created the calf using rituals from the Kabbalistic Sefer Yetzirah. This teaches that just as God spoke things into existence in Genesis, that they also had the power to create life. This is sticking the finger in the eye of God. This is echoed in the Word of Faith movement in Christianity. The golem will play a role in Bible prophecy, and in order to understand the role of the golem in prophecy we must first understand the role of Freemasonry in Bible prophecy. It's easy to see the connection of how the false prophet of Revelation who will be one of the popes of Rome, will be able to give life unto the image of the beast, and the way the rabbi in the 16th century was able to give life to the clay golem. In one of her books Alice Bailey says the following concerning the preparation of the New Age, the three main channels in which the preparation of the New Age might be regarded is the church, the Masonic fraternity, and the educational field. Regarding Freemasonry, she says it is a far more occult organization than can be realized, and is intended to be the training school for the coming advanced occultist. That is quite a statement concerning an organization that has members in the pews and pulpits of churches in every single Christian denomination. So now you know that Freemasonry is the training school for the occultist and now I will tell you what the curriculum is. On page 741 in the book Morals and Dogma, Freemasonry's Albert Pike says, Masonry is a search after light. That search leads us directly back as you see to the Kabbalah. In that ancient and little understood medley of absurdity and philosophy, the initiate will find the source of many doctrines and may in time come to understand the hermetic philosophers, the alchemist, all the anti-papal thinkers of the Middle Ages, and Emanuel Swedenborg. So understanding the role of Freemasonry in bringing in the new world order of the beast is with understanding the role of Kabbalah in Freemasonry. It's not a stretch to believe that when the false prophet gives life to the image of the beast, he will do so with Kabbalistic sorcery. This is easier to understand looking back to something I said in the last chapter. The Jesuit order was formed by Kabbalistic Jews who converted to Catholicism to avoid being expelled from their homes and country in 1492 Spain. This lines up perfectly when you look at the fact that the current Roman Pope was the head of the Jesuit order, Black Pope, before being elected as the current Pope. He could easily be the false prophet or second beast of Revelation. This ritual magic act has been preformed since antediluvian times. Graham Hancock talks about how the ancient traditions of Easter Island, as well as those of ancient Egypt, and around the world all have a magic ritual act that brings statues to life. He talks about the Maui of Easter Island and how the last of them supposedly died long ago when Mana Magic fled from the island never to return. Hancock says however, in common with only a very few of the other Maui, it is believed that through ritual magic the Maui statues have the power twice a year to transform themselves into living statues. It's hard to miss the connection between giving life to the image of the beast, and this ancient Maui ritual. On a side note, the two times a year that the Maui ritual takes place is on the winter solstice and summer equinox, which lines up with the holidays of Ex-Mas and the pagan traditions that the Catholic Church has brought into Easter, which some say is where the pagan holiday got its name. I don't agree with this because it's only called Easter in the English language. 
the concept that is startlingly similar to the way ancient Egyptian notion that statues became living images. Like the ceremony of the Maui, the ceremony of Ka brought the statue of Angor to life. After undergoing the ceremony of the opening of the month and the eyes, statues at Angor in Cambodia was likewise considered lifeless until they had their eyes mystically opened. The two days of the year that this ritual was performed was on sunrise on the December solstice and sunrise on the March equinox. The Gentile nations of the Old Testament had the same opening of the mouth ceremony for the idols of their gods. The demonic spirits would inhabit the idols for worship after the ritual. This was a practice with origins going all the way back to before the flood. The Shedim in the Old Testament are demons, and in the book of 1st Enoch we see that demons are the spirits of the dead Nephilim as I showed in chapter 1. The Nephilim were worshipped as gods before the flood and continued to be worshipped after the flood. This is what the ceremony of bringing the statues, idols to life is for. It was a practice of worship just like giving life to the image of the beast will be to cause people to worship the image. Make no mistake, this will be done by a master K-A-B-B-A-L-A-H-I-S-T using K-A-B-B-A-L-A-H-I-S-T-I-C magic. This will be seen further in chapter 8 when we look at the identity of the synagogue of Satan. The false prophet will deceive the nations through the lying signs and wonders he will have the power to perform. This is a clear example of sorcery and the fact that Kabbalistic sorcery can be found in almost every form of secret society, magic, witchcraft, and occult New Age rituals, is further proof that the false prophet will be a master Kabbalist. 7. Alistair Crowley, Secret Societies, and Other Forms of the Occult Based on Kabbalah Hermetic Kabbalah is derived from the Jewish form, but is a more synchronistic system, however it shares many concepts with Jewish Kabbalah and its sister Gnosticism. Alistair Crowley was a master Kabbalist, member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, 33rd degree Freemason, head of the OTO, and founder of modern Satanism and ritual magic. The son of a devout Christian couple, Edward Alexander Crowley was born in Leamington Spa in 1875. After Malvern School and Tunbridge College, he read natural sciences at Trinity College, Cambridge. On a visit to Sweden, he experienced a life-changing vision which persuaded him of his spiritual vocation, a calling which he marked by changing his name to Alistair. There's not an occult system or society today that wasn't influenced by Crowley and Kabbalah. His rituals were based on the Jewish Kabbalah, and combined sex magic and ritual sacrifice. Crowley stated that the perfect sacrifice was a male child eight years of age who hadn't lost his innocence. He was known as the Great Beast 666, Parabjuro, Ankefen Konsu, the wickedest man in the world. Alistair Crowley was a noted, and controversial, occultist. He wrote widely, founded his own religious order, and designed a set of tarot cards that are still used today. Defiantly unconventional in every respect, he lived life according to his own dictum, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, the great beast 666, a primary concern of hermetic Kabbalah is the nature of divinity, its conception of which is quite markedly different from that presented in monotheistic religions, in particular there is not the strict separation between divinity and humankind which is seen in monotheisms. 2. Hermetic Kabbalah holds to the Neoplatonic conception that the manifest universe, of which material creation is a part, arose as a series of emanations from the Godhead. 
3, these emanations arise out of three preliminary states that are considered to precede manifestation. The first is a state of complete nullity, known as an, nothing. The second state, considered a concentration of an, is ein sof, without limit, infinite. The third state, caused by a movement of ein sof, is ein sof or limitless light, and it is from this initial brilliance that Hermetic Kabbalah says that the first emanation of creation originates. 4. The Sephiroth in Hermetic Kabbalah. The Sephirothic tree showing the lightning flash and the paths. The Kabbalistic tree of life in the servants of the light organization's hermetic theory the emanations of creation arising from Ein Sofor are ten in number, and a Sephiroth called Singular Sephira enumeration. These are conceptualized no differently in Hermetic Kabbalah to the way they are in Jewish Kabbalah from Ansuf or crystallizes Kether, the first Sephira of the Hermetic Kabbalistic Tree of Life. From Kether emanate the rest of the Sephirot in turn, viz. Kether, 1, Chokma, 2, Bina, 3, Darth, Chest, 4, Gebura, 5, Tifereth, 6, Netzik, 7, Hod, 8, Yesed, 9, Malkath, 1, O. Darth is not assigned a number as it is considered part of Bina or a hidden Sephira. 6. Each Sephira is considered to be an emanation of the divine energy, often described as the divine light, which ever flows from the unmanifest, through Kether into manifestation. 7. This flow of light is indicated by the lightning flash shown on diagrams of the Sephirothic tree which passes through each Sephira in turn according to their enumerations. Each Sephira is a nexus of divine energy, and each has a number of attributions. These attributions enable the Kabbalist to form a comprehension of each particular Sephira's characteristics. This manner of applying many attributions to each Sephira is an exemplar of the diverse nature of Hermetic Kabbalah. For example, the Sephira Hod has the attributions of glory, perfect intelligence, the eights of the tarot deck, the planet Mercury, the Egyptian god Thoth, the archangel Michael, eight the Roman god Mercury and the alchemical element Mercury. 9. The general principle involved is that the Kabbalist will meditate on all these attributions and by this means to acquire an understanding of the character of the Sephira including all its correspondences. Tarot and the Tree of Life Hermetic Kabbalists see the cards of the Tarot as keys to the Tree of Life. The 22 cards including the 21 trumps plus the full or zero card are often called the major arcana or greater mysteries and are seen as corresponding to the 22 Hebrew letters and the 22 paths of the tree. The ace to 10 in each suit correspond to the 10 sephirot in the four Kabbalistic worlds and the 16 court cards relate to the classical elements in the four worlds. While the sephirot describe the nature of divinity, the paths between them describe ways of knowing the divine. Syncretism of Kabbalah, Alchemy, Astrology and other Esoteric Hermetic Disciplines. Orders of Angels According to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn's Interpretation of the Kabbalah, there are ten archangels, each commanding one of the choirs of angels and corresponding to one of the Sephirot. It is based on the Jewish Kabbalah. Hayat Hakadosh Holy Living Ones. One Metatron Kedah. Two of Phantom Wheels Raziel Chokma. 3 Erelim Brave Ones Zavkiel Binner. 4 Hashmalim Glowing Ones Amber Ones Zadkiel Chest. 5 Seraphim Shining Ones Carmel Gebura. 6 Malachim Messengers Angels Raphael Tifere. 7 Elohim Godly Beings Haniel Netzik. 8 Bene Elohim Sons of Elohim Michael Hod.
9 Cherubim, 17 Gabriel Yesod. 10 Isham men, man-like beings, phonetically similar to Fires, Sandalfon Malkuth. Traditionalist Judaic views of Kabbalah's origins view it as an original development from within the Jewish religion, perhaps expressed through syncretic terminology from medieval Jewish Neoplatonism. Contemporary academics of Jewish mysticism have reassessed Gershom Scholem's theory that the new doctrine of medieval Kabbalah assimilated an earlier Jewish version of Gnosticism. Moshe Idol instead has posited a historical continuity of development from early Jewish mysticism. In contrast, Hermeticists have taken the view on the origins of Kabbalah in Semitic, Jewish mysticism as well as ancient Egyptian Gnosticism, but in also in classical Greece with Indo-European cultural roots, later adopted by Jewish mystics. According to this view, Hermetic Kabbalah wouldn't be the original Kabbalah, after all the word itself is Judaic Hebrew, over the Christian Kabbalah or the Jewish Kabbalah. Renaissance occultism Jewish Kabbalah was absorbed into the Hermetic tradition at least as early as the 15th century when Giovanni Pico della Mirandola promoted a syncretic worldview combining Platonism, Neoplatonism, Aristotelianism, Hermeticism and Kabbalah. Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, 1486-1535, a German magician, occult writer, theologian, astrologer, and alchemist, wrote the influential three books of occult philosophy, incorporating Kabbalah in its theory and practice of Western magic. It contributed strongly to the Renaissance view of ritual magic's relationship with Christianity. Pico's hermetic syncretism was further developed by Athanasius Kircher, a Jesuit priest, hermeticist and polymath, who wrote extensively on the subject in 1652, bringing further elements such as Orphism and Egyptian mythology to the mix. The Kircher Tree, Athanasius Kircher's 1652 depiction of the Tree of Life, based on a 1625 version by Philippe Daquin. This is still the most common arrangement of the Sephiroth and paths on the tree in Hermetic Kabbalah. Enlightenment-era esoteric societies once Hermeticism was no longer endorsed by the Christian Church it was driven underground and a number of Hermetic Brotherhoods were formed. With the Enlightenment Age of Reason and its skepticism of mainstream religion, the tradition of exoteric theological Christian Kabbalah declined, while esoteric occult Hermetic Kabbalah flourished in the Western mystery tradition. Non-Jewish Kabbalah, like in Judaic Kabbalah's mainstream censure of its magical side, became a central component of Western occult, magic and divination. Rosicrucianism and esoteric branches of Freemasonry taught religious philosophies, Kabbalah, and divine magic in progressive steps of initiation. Their esoteric teachings, and secret society structure of an outer body governed by a restricted inner level of adepts, laid the format for modern esoteric organizations. 19th century magical revival post-enlightenment romanticism encouraged societal interest in occultism, of which hermetic Kabbalistic writing was a feature. Francis Barrett's The Magus 1801, Handbook of Ceremonial Magic gained little notice until it influenced the French magical enthusiast Eliphaz Levi 1810-1875. His fanciful literary embellishments of magical invocations presented Kabbalism as synonymous with both so-called white and so-called black magic. Levi's innovations included attributing the Hebrew letters to the tarot cards, thus formulating a link between Western magic and Jewish esotericism which has remained fundamental ever since in Western magic. 
Levi had a deep impact on the magic of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Through the occultists inspired by him, including Aleister Crowley, who considered himself Levi's reincarnation, Levi is remembered as one of the key founders of the 20th century revival of magic. Hermetic Kabbalah was developed extensively by the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Within the Golden Dawn, the fusing of Kabbalistic principles such as the Ten Sephiroth with Greek and Egyptian deities was made more cohesive and was extended to encompass other systems such as the Enochian system of angelic magic of John Dee and certain Eastern, particularly Hindu and Buddhist, concepts, all within the structure of a Masonic or Rosicrucian-style esoteric order. Alistair Crowley, who passed through the Golden Dawn before going on to form his own magical orders, is the most widely known exponent of hermetic magic or magic as he preferred to spell it. Crowley's book Liber 777 is a good illustration of the wider hermetic approach. It is a set of tables of correspondences relating various parts of ceremonial magic and Eastern and Western religion to the 32 numbers representing the 10 spheres Sephiroth, plus the 22 paths of the Kabbalistic Sephiroth tree. Perhaps the two most important and influential occult secret societies are either based on or uses the Kabbalah. They are the Freemasons and the Rosicrucians. We will look at Freemasonry first. As stated in the last chapter, Freemasonry is both based on the Jewish Kabbalah and connected to end times Bible prophecy. First, let us consider the history of the Masonic movement. In some cases, the Masons trace the origin of their secret society back to the guilds of Masons who worked for King Solomon. Historically of course this is untenable. In Europe, 1717 is named as the foundation year of the first Great Lodge. Lodges in Germany began in 1738, when Frederick the Great became a member. In the USA I have been told that there are about 5 million Freemasons and that is an old estimate from the late 90s and early 21st century. In Germany their numbers are estimated around 50 to 80,000. It is impossible to describe the organization and ideas of all the lodges in the same terms. And some lodges, magic and spiritism are practiced, but there are others in which a cult of friendship and light is fostered and in which they engage in philanthropic works. What has surprised me the most in the United States is that there are Methodist and Baptist ministers, high-ranking officers of the Salvation Army, and many bishops who belong to Masonic lodges. This was one of the many reasons why I left the Southern Baptist Church. I had pastors tell me they have preached in churches where Masonic symbols were displayed behind the pulpit. He said to the pastor of this particular church, if I had known beforehand that this was a Masonic church, I would not have accepted the invitation to preach here. It is encouraging that in the USA, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod has forbidden its ministers and elders to belong to any lodge. This is one observation I think it is my duty to mention especially since I frequently have negative things to say about the Lutheran denomination and Martin Luther himself. It is the experience of many spiritually alive ministers in North America, that churches whose ministers are Freemasons are also spiritually dead. It is also difficult to preach the gospel in such churches one has the impression that some kind of band has been put on the whole church. In his book Occult ABC, Kurt E. Koch writes, there follow a few examples from my own work. EX63 My most recent experience was a meeting with a high-ranking Mason from St. Petersburg, Florida. 
After I had spoken in Dr. Kenneth Moon's church, a man came to me for help who had reached the 32nd degree of masonry. The highest grade is the 33rd, that of the Grand Master. His request was that I should help his wife, who suffered from depression. I asked him to bring his wife to me, since one cannot cancel someone through another. During the conversation I asked him about his own relationship to Christ. He gave a vague answer, saying that he believed in God. Through the questions that I asked, the conversation came round to a central point, and I discovered that the man was hindered by a spiritual blockade. He was not in a position even to understand the facts of salvation in the New Testament, much less accept them. I was unable to help this man. Freemasonry begins with Blue Lodge Masonry which has three degrees, Entered Apprentice, Fellow Craft, and Master. Once the initiate becomes a Master Mason he can then choose to enter either the York Rite, or the Scottish Rite. Of the two rites, Scottish Rite Masonry is the form most practiced in the United States, and is said to use the most Kabbalah rituals. Of all the Luciferian secret societies, Freemasonry is the most well-known and one of the least known about by the public. Only the higher-ranking Masons know that the god of Freemasonry is Lucifer. The Illuminati found a place to hide in plain sight within the Freemasons, which is why only the 33rd degree Masons know Masonry's true role in bringing in the new world order of the beast system. Theosophy is an occult society that is based on two Jewish traditions Kabbalah, and Gnosticism. The Rosicrucians are a theosophical secret society so before explaining Rosicrucianism, we should first look at Theosophy. Founded in 1875 by Henry S. Olcott, and Helena P. Blavatsky. Theosophy teaches the doctrine of the Ascended Masters, and is where many of the beliefs in the New Age movement come from as well as its founding members such as Alice Bailey. They falsely believe that Jesus is one of those Ascended Masters. The truth is that like the gods of Kabbalah, the Ascended Masters are the Fallen Watchers. Theosophy combines the practices of Kabbalah, Gnosticism, and the practices of Eastern religions such as Buddhism and Hinduism. The New Age movement, Latter-day Saints, and Jehovah's Witnesses also stem from Theosophy and use Jewish Kabbalah. The fact that there are so many members of the churches in the false Christian movements in the charismatic New Apostolic Reformation that uses so many New Age occult practices and devices such as destiny cards, tarot cards, angel boards, Ouija boards, and being filled with the Kundalini spirit, shows just how much the devil has infiltrated and deceived the charismatic churches that were once Christian. The Rosicrucians call themselves a Brotherhood Order. The full name of this order is Antiquus Mysticus Ordo Rose Crucis. This Latin name means Ancient Mystic Order of the Rose Cross. The headquarters of the International Brotherhood is in San Jose, California. A colorful, glittering picture is presented of the Rosicrucians by their own account of the movement. The order claims to have its roots in the mystical schools of Egypt at the time of Pharaoh Amenophis 1350 BC. They also claim to have been active in Israel at the time of Moses. They say that they helped with the construction of Solomon's temple much like the Freemasons. The symbol of the Rosicrucians is a cross with a rose. The significance of these is explained in SA 17, published by the German Grand Lodge in Baden-Baden. The cross symbolizes the human body with arms outstretched and greeting to the rising sun. The rose in the middle of the cross signifies the soul of man. 
Rosicrucians attach this leitmotif to the symbol, ad rosem per crucem, ad cruem per rosem, to the rose through the cross, to the cross through the rose. And their doctrines, the Rosicrucians are eager to keep themselves free from all racial, political, or religious attachment. What does the order teach then? A pamphlet published in Baden-Baden gives the following answer. The order teaches a system of metaphysical and scientific philosophy aimed at awakening the latent powers of man, so that a person can make better use of his natural talents and lead a happier and more useful life. An illuminating introduction to the order is given in the brochure, Mastery of Life. The truth is that since it is a theosophical society, they practice magic from the Kabbalah, Egyptian mystery schools, which they admit to by claiming the society began in those Egyptian schools, and Eastern spiritualism such as Buddhism and Hinduism. The Rosicrucians were most likely founded in Germany and can be traced back to a German Masonic order that was founded in 1760. The German Rosicrucians began as a mystic federation, which practiced magic, Kabbalah, and alchemy. If you have made it this far into the book, you should be able to clearly see that Rabbinic Judaism is far from the religion of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the Israelites of the Old Testament. 8th Synagogue of Satan this chapter may very well upset a great many of you, but it is my hope and prayer that the Holy Spirit will open up your eyes to the truth written in this book, and in this chapter especially. I'm not going to beat around the bush or dance around the truth. The synagogue of Satan is Rabbinic Judaism. This is the modern form of Jewish worship, and has been since the time of the Pharisees before Jesus' day. There is absolutely no synagogue in Christianity or any other religion other than Rabbinic Judaism. The followers of Christ were run out of the synagogues in the first century, and except for the followers of Christ who started the church and some early converts, Judaism as a whole rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Each of the rabbis who wrote the Kabbalistic, holy books rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and once they did each of them had a fallen angel appear to them and give them the words to write down in these so-called, holy books. A specter has been haunting the Jewish world for over two millennia, the specter of rabbinic authority, a man-made religion which has developed its own particular system of laws, distinct and separate from the Bible, one which has placed its shackles of legalism and mysticism on the Jewish people, at least since the destruction of the Second Temple. When the Pharisees came into existence, the historical and geopolitical circumstances that came from the Roman occupancy paved the way for this group to push aside other competing parties, through developing the right connections at the highest political levels. This relatively small, but powerful, sect managed to impose its traditions and ideology upon the entire nation through the development and elevation of the oral law and mysticism into a divine system which allegedly came straight from God. The rabbis have literally replaced the importance and authority of the written law with their oral law, traditions, and writings. The sages carried out their revolutionary vision by addressing three fronts, or pillars, of the Jewish world and by reforming them completely, the priests were replaced with rabbis, the temple was replaced with the yeshiva and the Bible was subordinated to the oral law teachings. The oral law could not have originated with God and it goes against the written law. By presenting biblical, and historical evidence, this book has shown the pagan and Hellenistic influences which were deliberately adopted by the mystical sages in order to fill up the void made by the abandonment of authentic, biblical Judaism. 
Finally, I demonstrated how, after 2000 years, the mystical reformation reached its peak with Kabbalah. Their traditions have become a doctrine of devils. So now, the rabbis are receiving the sponsorship of the State of Israel, while continuing to expand their influence throughout the world. According to rabbinic literature, the oral law symbolizes the tree of knowledge, 314, meaning, the oral law is a tree for knowledge and is called the tree of knowledge. Its existence is in knowledge which is the mouth. Hence, studying the oral law resembles eating from the tree of knowledge, which, as written in Genesis chapter 2 verse 17, results in death. Sad to say, but for 2000 years and more, countless number of Jews devote their time to eating from this tree of Gnosis, while diligently studying the Talmud, Zohar, and Book of Third Enoch, day in and day out. It is my prayer that by the grace of God, their hearts would turn, and at last they will recognize, and taste of, the genuine tree of life, which is Jesus Christ the Messiah. This is not very likely to happen anytime soon. The book of Titus talks about this very thing. It says in Titus chapter 1 verses 10 to 14. 10. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. 11. Whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not, for filthy Lucas Sarke. 12. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always lies, evil beasts, slow bellies. 13. This witness is true. Wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. 14. Not giving heed to Jewish fables, and commandments of men, that turn from the truth. There is a reason why Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 8 verses 38 to 44. 38. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. 39. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. 40. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God, this did not Abraham. 41. Ye do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, We be not born of fornication, we have one father, even God. 42. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, ye would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. 43. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. 44. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. The Pharisees were in league with the Herodians, and they were not even Jews. Although Herod was the king of the Jews put in place by Rome, they were Edomites. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau who converted to Judaism around the time of the Maccabees. This was Esau's revenge against Jacob prophesied in the Old Testament. The nation of Judah foolishly let the Edomites become Jews and they became their rulers. I see this along with the Roman occupation as judgment from God because of the legalism and mysticism that had replaced holiness and following the will of God. We see the relationship between the Pharisees and the Herodians when they conspire together to kill Jesus. It says in Mark chapter 3 verses 1 to 6 he entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. 
they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him, as to how they might destroy him. Some of the Edomites also became Pharisees. I will never understand why people pick and choose which parts of the Bible they should believe based on what their preacher says. This is plain as the nose on my face, and Jesus Christ himself said it. That doesn't stop countless people from believing that the Jewish faith is on a parallel path to heaven with the followers of Christ. This comes from the infiltration of the Christian seminaries by the Zionists and Jesuits on the seminary boards that decide what to teach as sound doctrine. So then we end up with pastors in the pulpits preaching dispensationalism and Christian Zionism. In the book of Revelation, Jesus himself gives a report of themselves to the seven literal congregations in Asia Minor. These seven churches were in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Chitira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Out of the seven report cards, only two had nothing bad said in them by our Lord. The first of these good reports is of Smyrna, but Jesus mentions someone other than the people in the church. In Revelation chapter 2 verses 8 to 9. 8 And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead, and is alive. 9 I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Here you are able to see that I did not create the title, Synagogue of Satan. I got it from the ultimate source of truth, Jesus Christ. In his letter to the other church that he doesn't rebuke, the church in Philadelphia, Jesus again mentioned the followers of darkness. In Revelation chapter 3 verses 7 to 13. 7 And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. 8. I know thy works, behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. 9. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie, behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. 10. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. 11. Behold, I come quickly, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. 12. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. 13. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. I have done my very best to show you in this book that the mystery religions came from the worship of fallen watchers and their children, the Nephilim. Furthermore I have shown that Jewish mysticism and Talmudism replaced the worship of YHVH, and ultimately led to the rejection and crucifixion of Christ. 
The Jewish Kabbalah is made up of each of the mystery religions, Merkabah mysticism, and first century Pharisees. So with what Jesus said to the Pharisees themselves about being of their father the devil, and the fact that since the time of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD the rabbis have only continued in adding to the blasphemy of the Pharisees, it should be more than clear that rabbinic Judaism is indeed the synagogue of Satan spoken of in the book of Revelation. 9. Should Christians practice Kabbalah? If you have made it to chapter 8 and you didn't know before this book that Kabbalah is witchcraft, Jewish mysticism, it goes completely against God, and should never be practiced by believers, you should now. That being said Kabbalah is being practiced in the Christian church all over the world. This is due in majority to infiltration. The church is being infiltrated by Kabbalah in numerous denominations, and its teachings can be found in groups such as the Hebrew Roots Movement, Messianic Judaism, Dispensationalism, Christian Zionism, the Word of Faith Movement, the New Apostolic Reformation, as well as Freemasonry which has members in the denominations, and the groups named above. There isn't enough room in one chapter alone to name all the ways that these groups are being infiltrated, but I am going to name specific pastors, rabbis, authors, books, and methods that have been used to infiltrate the Christian church in all groups and denominations. In doing this, it isn't my goal to defame anyone. I seek only to warn my brothers and sisters in Messiah about these individuals, and their materials. We shall begin with the Hebrew Roots Movement. This is a movement with as many branches as the Christian Church itself with all its denominations. I want to say off the bat that not everyone in the HRM believes in these things, and I know people in the Hebrew Roots community who I consider my brothers and sisters in Christ. Dr. Stephen Pigeon is the founder and CEO of the Sefer Publishing Group. Dr. Pigeon and Sefer Publishing are the creators of one of, if not the most popular Hebrew Roots Bibles, the Ez Sefer. The Sefer translation takes away from the deity of Christ by changing Mary the Virgin Mother of Jesus, to being Miriam the Maiden Mother of Jesus. This is one of many reasons I don't endorse the Sefer, and this is definitely a translation of scripture that is leading many people astray. One popular doctrine in the HRM is that the Holy Spirit is female. This comes directly from the Kabbalistic doctrine of Malkut the Shekinah. Another HRM doctrine is that the Holy Spirit is Barbello. This is a Gnostic teaching that ties directly to Kabbalah as the female aspect of God as well. Another HRM doctrine from Kabbalah is the sacred name doctrine that says that Yeshua, Yehashua, and other forms of the Hebrew name Joshua is the only name in which one can be saved by. Now those who know me, or have heard my program have heard me use the name Yeshua when talking about the Messiah, but I use the name Jesus just as much. Perhaps the most dangerous thing about the HRM in my opinion, is that it leads people to Messianic congregations. Messianic Judaism is a very misleading term, and a Messianic rabbi is an oxymoron. One very popular Messianic rabbi here in the US, is Itzhak Shapira. In his book, The Return of the Kosher Pig by Rabbi Itzhak Shapira, is one of the latest attempts to initiate Christians into Kabbalah by disclosing Jewish mysticism in a Christian light. The premise of the book is to reveal the divine nature of the Messiah, Yeshua, concealed within the rabbinic writings of Jewish sages, including the Babylonian Talmud, the Kabbalah, the Midrash and other extra-biblical writings. 
In his presentation of Yeshua as the prophesied divine Messiah, Rabbi Shapira delves deep into the occult teachings of Kabbalah and the Antichrist writings of the Babylonian Talmud. The inevitable course of this approach will inherently lead to another gospel and another Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 11-3 the Apostle Paul warns the church of another Jesus and another gospel. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 8 Paul wrote, But though we, or an angel of heaven preach any other gospel, let him be accursed. As ministers of the gospel, neither Paul nor any of the apostles ever wavered from the sure foundation of Moses and the prophets having their complete fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. There was no trading off or compromise with doctrines of demons such as those presented in the return of the kosher pig. When Kabbalah speaks of the coming Mashiach Messiah, it is never speaking about Jesus Christ, nor is Jesus Christ the Messiah spoken of in the Babylonian Talmud. The prophecies of the sages that Shapira references in his book all point to the coming of a Messiah that is not Jesus Christ, therefore he is Antichrist. In the first section of the book titled, To the Reader, Shapira introduces himself as a rabbi holding a rabbinic ordination through IAMCS, International Alliance of Messianic Congregations and Synagogues, but stresses the point that he has no connection or relationship to Christianity other than following the same Messiah. He, she, using holy Hebrew manuscripts and traditions as his foundation, Shapira says his desire is to present a kosher Yeshua, the pig. In the introduction to his book, Shapira begins by building a Kabbalistic frame of reference on how the Kingdom of God will be manifested on Earth. Kabbalists believe that there is a divine spark of God within every person and within all of creation. This is New Age pantheism, God in everything and everyone. The Kabbalah teaches that at the fall in the Garden of Eden, the divine sparks were scattered and that the Messiah will only come when the sparks, specifically the scattered Jews, are gathered back to the land of Israel. Shapira explains, the two conditions needed to bring the kingdom of God to earth and to bring Jewish souls or sparks back to God. In Jewish thought, the Messiah will only appear when the truth lights presents itself in the proper context, tools, the restoration and salvation of all of Israel and the entire world is dependent upon the restoration of the divine Jewish sparks back to Hashem. The truth by itself, about the nature of the Messiah will not bring him and his kingdom to us. His kingdom will be established when all of the Jewish sparks will be gathered again. The traditions of Jewish mysticism are the same traditions for which Jesus condemned the religious Pharisees of his time. And while Shapira presents this Kabbalistic fable to his readers as kosher, he fails to reveal the full spectrum of this false teaching, that at the fall, the Messiah of the Kabbalah himself fell into the abyss, that he too is in exile, and will only be released from the pit when there is a critical mass of sparks calling for him to come forth on the earth. Shapira also infers that we need the mediation and mystical writings of the rabbinic sages of old in order to properly understand the Bible. He states, in my opinion, the method of presenting Yeshua as the Jewish Messiah needs to be re-evaluated. Some believe that proclaiming the words of the Bible itself is sufficient. I do agree that the Bible holds the ultimate truth, but are we to ignore external resources, Kabbalah, Babylonian Talmud, etc., that describe the nature of the Messiah? After establishing an approved framework for his readers to better understand messianic prophecy, Shapira then sets the stage for the case of the kosher pig by quoting rabbinic sages whose writings say that in the messianic era the pig will become kosher again. 
In other words, the pig will return to Israel, Yeshua will be welcomed by the world and will rule the nations from a utopian Jewish kingdom on earth. How do these claims by Shapira and other rabbinic sages compare with Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Do they stand up to the incorruptible word of God? No, they do not. And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? Isaiah chapter 8 verse 19, another messianic author misleading Christians with subtlety that rivals the serpent in the garden, is best-selling author Jonathan Kahn. He uses Kabbalistic terminology all throughout his books and I've seen references to the Shekinah on his website. Christian author Diane Loper has done an excellent job exposing people like Shapira and Khan in her book, Kabbalah Secrets Christians Need to Know, an in-depth look at the kosher pig by Rabbi Itzhakshapira. I quoted her book above in what I said about Shapira's book. I'm not saying that one can't be a Christian and go to a messianic synagogue, or be a part of a messianic congregation. What I am saying is that you can't practice Judaism and be a Christian at the same time. That brings me to the next two ways that these doctrines are infiltrating the church, dispensationalism, and Christian Zionism. The two terms really can go hand in hand in most cases. Dispensationalism has too many problems to name in this book so I'll stick to the ones relevant to the book. Dispensationalist and Christian Zionists alike both believe that God has a separate plan for the church and for Israel. This has turned into the belief that Jews don't need Jesus because they have their own covenant with God. This is deceiving for both Christians and Jews alike, and was created by the enemy to keep the Jewish people from coming to a true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Another way these two doctrines are bringing Kabbalah into the church is through their acceptance of all things Jewish. Because they are ignorant to what Judaism actually teaches, they accept things like the Shekinah, and Noahide laws as being truth from scripture. Neither are found in the word of God and both come from Judaism. The Shekinah is the manifestation of the female Holy Spirit in Kabbalah and I heard it preached from the pulpits in the Southern Baptist Church all my life. The Noahide laws aren't actually from Noah, and aren't found in the Bible. They come from exclusively from the Babylonian Talmud. The Word of Faith movement and its preachers like Benny Hinn and Joel Osteen have brought in the Kabbalistic doctrine that man can move God. The Bible says that faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains, but only the Zohar says that man can move God. As I said in Chapter 4, the Kabbalah asks the question exactly who kicked whom out of the garden. The Zohar says Adam kicked God out of Eden, and the Word of Faith movement builds on this by saying that you can speak anything into existence if you have enough faith. Pastor Austin goes much, much further than this and into the Kabbalistic doctrine of the divine sparks with his statements that there are many paths to God. The next group that are teaching Kabbalistic doctrine is that of the New Apostolic Reformation. This is an entire group that needs to be given a very wide berth by everyone. I could write an entire book in this series on the New Apostolic Reformation, but for now I will name a church and its pastor that I know most will likely know. That is Bethel Church in Redding, California, and their pastor Bill Johnson. Although Pastor Bill Johnson wants to deny being a part of the NAR, his and Bethel's doctrine and teaching say otherwise. 
I understand why he wouldn't want to admit to practices of invoking angels, tarot cards, spirit boards, and don't forget about grave soaking. Whether or not he wants to admit being a Nah church that's taking people away from the Jesus Christ of the Bible, every mystical practice I just named is both Nah doctrine, and something practiced at Bethel, and taught at Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. There is a big connection between the Jehovah's Witnesses, Hebrew Rooters, and Messianic Judaism. They none want to admit this but it is true nonetheless. All three want to either make Jesus out to be just a man, or say he didn't exist before being born on the earth, taking away from the deity of Christ. Another dangerous doctrine that I mentioned earlier in this chapter, and several times throughout the book is that the Holy Spirit is female. Popular Hebrew roots teacher and author Zen Garcia writes in the dedication at the very beginning of his book Sons of God, that the Holy Spirit is Barbello. This goes beyond the Kabbalah into the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus says flat out in his letter to the Church of Laodicea that he hates this doctrine. Barbello is another name for the female goddess of the mysteries. Goddess worship from Kabbalah and Gnosticism shows up in many places throughout the so-called Christian churches. The Roman Catholics practice it in the form of Mary worship. The RCC as stated earlier is full of Kabbalistic teaching and practices that come from the Jesuits. As a matter of fact the Jesuits have infiltrated almost every Protestant denomination there is. They've done everything from destroying churches from the inside by discrediting pastors, to bringing Kabbalistic and Catholic doctrine to churches that spread throughout that denomination. They've also infiltrated the seminaries and indoctrinated the pastors. Teaching lies to believers in the churches is only possible because of the lack of knowledge of scripture. If the people in the churches read their Bibles for themselves, they wouldn't be able to have their doctrine corrupted. Hosea chapter 4 verse 6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, but that's only the beginning. Spiritual wisdom comes from the knowledge of the truth you get when you study the word of God for yourself. We should desire to be more than just eternally secure. We should desire to be disciples of Jesus Christ. In order to be a disciple of Christ we must continue in the doctrine of Christ. We should read those red letters, the words of Jesus until we know them by heart, and can then live them out. That is being a disciple of the King of Kings. 10 Breaking Demonic Strongholds from Using Kabbalah, From Judaism to Jesus When you practice Kabbalah you open yourself up to many kinds of demonic forces and strongholds. Some people are born into the synagogue of Satan, but that doesn't mean they can't be redeemed. We know that all have fallen short and need redemption from sin. Deliverance is possible but you must first come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. If there were no way of deliverance and freedom from the oppression and possession that comes from practicing Kabbalah and any form of the occult, I would not have written this book. My wish now is that the Holy Spirit may give me the wisdom and so inspire my writing that the reader will have the desire to seek and find the way of deliverance. Many people who take part in practicing Kabbalah find deliverance after they find Jesus Christ. The number of people who find freedom is always smaller than the number of the oppressed. 
Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that there are many who go the broad way and only a few who find the narrow way. Salvation, healing, and deliverance is offered to all in Christ. However there are only a few who grasp the outstretched hand of the Lord by faith. There is no reason for discouragement. We know of the victory. We know that God will make all the enemies of his son a footstool for his feet. We can therefore be of good cheer, however dark and full of demons the world may seem. The following is an example of one who practiced Kabbalah through Orthodox Rabbinic Judaism. This is the story of someone born into Judaism, but accepted the true Messiah, and through Christ overcame the curse of sin and death. The year was 1970, and the post-Woodstock hippie movement swept America. Searching for meaning in his life, a young hippie named Jacob, along with a friend, dropped out of college in Connecticut and hitchhiked across the country to San Francisco. Their journey was about more than just a change of venue. Jacob, only 17 years old at the time, sought answers he wasn't finding in his Jewish roots. Growing up in a Kabbalistic Jewish home in New York City, he regularly attended synagogue and observed traditional holidays like Yom Kippur and Passover. Jacob was proud of his heritage, but something was missing. He was entrenched in religion and mysticism, but never felt connected to God. Questions surfaced like, what is the meaning of life? So the scraggly bearded youth headed west, bringing only what he could carry on his back, in hopes of finding answers. In California, Jacob and a few other friends built a houseboat, living for free by borrowing utilities from their neighbors, and delved into the hippie lifestyle. Meanwhile, Jacob still strongly identified himself as a Jew. Today, about 5 million Jews live in the United States. 88% practice Kabbalah, but less than 20% regularly attend synagogue. Eventually, a building inspector condemned the houseboat. Shortly after, a Jewish friend named Joan visited. After spending time with some Christians, Joan had been delivered from a demon and now knew that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and couldn't wait to share her experience. She preached heavily to us about the end times, Jacob says. I thought she was absolutely nuts. It was as if Joan were turning her back on her roots. I said, of course I'm not a Christian. I'm Jewish, he remembers. As a Jew, Jacob's attitude toward Christianity was largely shaped by his grandparents' history in Europe. To them, Christianity was a foreign and hostile religion responsible for horrific events like the Holocaust and the Crusades. I was raised to believe Jesus not only wasn't Jewish, but he was anti-Jewish, he said. Yet Jacob's friends were drawn by Joan's personal experience. She made Jesus sound amazing, after all, he was a revolutionary. So they decided to visit her Christian friends in Oregon to hear more. Jacob tagged along suspiciously. Jacob probably thought we were involved in something dangerous, Joan remembers. That night at dinner with the group of Christians, Jacob had an encounter with God. While the owner of the house prayed, sat with his eyes open. It was strange to him, the man talked out loud to God, as if he knew him. Jacob had been possessed by two different demons while practicing mysticism, but was delivered that night. He could sense a powerful presence in the room when he was delivered. He knew it was God. From then on, Jacob was determined to know this God. So he began reading the Old Testament, something few Jews do. He yearned to connect with God like Abraham and Moses did. 
At one point, Jacob approached some ultra-Orthodox rabbis for help. The spiritual leaders avoided answering his questions. I tried giving traditional Judaism a chance to talk me out of accepting Jesus, he says. Instead, by cutting me off, it made me think they were trying to hide something. A little while later, Jacob took a job as a counselor at an ecology camp in the Redwood Forest. As he approached a phone booth one night, the moon illuminated something on the ledge where a phone book should have been. It was a copy of the New Testament, which Jacob began reading regularly. Through his reading he discovered that Jesus was actually Jewish. He celebrated Passover. He fit the descriptions in the Old Testament prophecies. And although Christ's claims were beginning to make sense to Jacob, believing in Jesus felt like an act of betrayal of his heritage and family. While hiking in the forest one evening, Jacob wrestled with God. You don't understand, Jacob prayed. You don't have a Jewish mother. But Jesus did have a Jewish mother, he realized. God understood, and could help him in his new faith. From then on, Jacob's belief solidified. Today he serves as president for an international Christian outreach to Jewish people. Jews doubt that Jesus was the Messiah because he wasn't a military leader, like their tradition expected. Yet scripture is clear. More than 300 Old Testament references prophesying details about the Messiah were all fulfilled by Jesus. For a Jewish person to develop faith in Jesus, they need to see Christ as the completion of their roots, says Jacob, not a step away from those roots. Believing in Jesus doesn't mean you stop being Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. The irony is that. People say you cannot believe in Jesus and be Jewish, says Joan, who moved to Israel 21 years ago to reconnect with her Jewish heritage. We have found pertinence to Jewish festivals that we never found before. Jews who believe Jesus is the Messiah are Jewish believers but everyone who is in Christ are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Terminology can sometimes mislead. I don't like labels, says Joan. But know two things about me, I am a Jew, and I believe in Jesus as the Messiah of Israel and the world. Conclusion In closing I just want to encourage each of you to draw as close to God as you possibly can, because a time is fast approaching when we are going to be tested and tempted so strongly that most of us can't even imagine it, especially those of us who live here in the West. When this time of severe tribulation comes upon the church, only those who have the word of God written upon our hearts will be able to withstand the temptation to take the mark and worship the beast in his image. Consider the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Out of all seven, only two of them stood firm through the persecution. All seven were born-again believers who got a personal letter from the King of Kings calling them candlesticks Christians. Jesus commended all seven churches on the things they were doing right, but he also chastised five of them for the things they were doing wrong and warned them that if they didn't repent, he would remove their name from the book of life. Even with a letter from the Messiah himself, the majority of the Christians in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 were in danger of falling away. We can already see people who the whole world believed to be Christian, become a part of what Paul called the great apostasy, falling away. Just while I was writing this book a man who I truly admired as a man of God, Ravi Zacharias died and the whole world found out that he was living a secret life in complete debauchery. 
brothers and sisters there's never been a time when it was more important to draw near to Jesus. It's so easy to backslide when things get hard and we're under spiritual attack, and that's just in everyday life. The Great Tribulation will be 1000 times worse. I feel like I need to share with my readers the level of spiritual warfare I endured while writing this book. When God led me to write a series of books on the origins and practices of the occult, I should have known that the enemy would do everything he could to stop me. I was naive in believing that simply because I was being obedient and writing the books, I would automatically be protected from spiritual attacks. I wasn't prepared spiritually and I paid the price, both physically and spiritually. I cover in the chapter Kabbalah through the ages of Pharisees and sages, how the rabbis warned of the spiritual dangers of practicing Kabbalah without being spiritually prepared, because of the spiritual forces one encounters. Although I definitely wasn't practicing Kabbalah, I had to read a lot of the literature while writing the book. The same principle applies here. Also I know that the enemy definitely didn't want me to write a book exposing the synagogue of Satan, and foundation for the one world religion of the Antichrist system. I got so caught up in the writing of the book that I forgot to put on all of my armor. I always pray, but I wasn't praying for protection against the attacks of the enemy. I wasn't ready for war, but war was upon me. I had the power to bind the evil entities but didn't. I even started the book off saying we have been given authority over serpents and scorpions, and if we walk in that authority nothing shall by any means harm us. I tell you all this because I want you to realize two things. First, there are very powerful fallen angels and demons attached to the occult practices I've told you about in this book, and if you get involved in them, you have given these fallen entities permission to use you and even harm or kill you. Second and most importantly, you have the authority over these entities but you have to claim that power and walk in it. I have done my best to show the origins and dangers of occult worship, and to shine the light of scripture on Rabbinic Judaism and Kabbalah. I pray that you have been blessed by what you have read. My intention was to shine light on these dark practices, and hopefully reach those who have been a part of them so they might stop these abominable practices and come to Jesus Christ before it's too late. I want you all to understand that the only unforgivable sin is rejecting Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible means by blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If you have been blessed by this book please recommend it to friends, family, and anyone else who might benefit from reading it. Look for Origins of Evil Book 2, History, Practices, and Effects of Occult Movements to be available in the winter of 2022. May God bless each and every one of you in Jesus' name.